Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Arsenal Women Arsecast on Arsblog.com with me, Tim Stillman. Now, I'm aware that when I record these rambling preambles for the podcast, I pretty much always describe the episodes as a special episode. And in a sense, I'm right, because all of the episodes are special. We're very proud of this podcast and some of the material that we put out. Um, so I'm not going to apologize for, again, labeling this as a special episode because we have a very special guest in Arsenal legend Julie Fleeting. Now, some of you will know that there was a documentary on BBC Alba. That's the kind of Scottish BBC channel. Um, last Sunday, Sunday, the 10th of April, an hour long documentary. Well, a little bit more than an hour, actually, about Julie's career. And when I heard that this documentary was was being made and that it was going to air, I was really, really happy because there are so many players from the women's game from not even that long ago, certainly not that long ago, if you're my age anyway, um, you know, just over 10, 15 years ago, who who achieved extraordinary things. And I feel like archiving and history is, is it's such a gap uh, when we talk about the women's game and there's so little kind of footage and so few things to go on when we talk about some of the fairly recent legends of the women's game. And Julie Fleeting is absolutely a legend of the women's game. And so this documentary is, is about her career from when she was growing up in Scotland, went to play in the US, obviously came to Arsenal after that, playing while, while she was a mother um, and bringing her daughter Ella uh, to training and to Scotland national team training camps and things like that. And I've always felt like Julie's legacy is quite overlooked, um, not least, I think, for a couple of reasons. First of all, like I said, the kind of lack of footage that was available at the time. Um, a lot of her kind of feats aren't really archived particularly well. We don't have a lot of footage of her doing things like scoring hat-tricks in FA Cup finals, um, winning the European Cup with Arsenal. She was part of that legendary team in 2006-07 that won the quadruple. But one of the things that the documentary really brings out is some of the barriers really that she faced. Um, it's quite extraordinary to think about now, but Julie didn't train with Arsenal. Um, she was a PE teacher in Scotland. So what she used to do was she would train twice a week with a local team, a local men's team, I believe, an under-21 side. And every Sunday morning, she'd catch a flight from Scotland to wherever Arsenal were playing meet at the team hotel, get changed with her team, play, and then fly back on the Sunday evening. And sometimes at away matches, she was literally substituted after 60 or 70 minutes because she had to go and be on a flight. And she did this for years for Arsenal. And when you consider that and her goal-scoring record at the club, 
130 goals in 122 appearances for Arsenal. Absolutely extraordinary. And to put that into some kind of perspective, I mean, that's better than a goal a game. And even Vivian Miedema can't boast that um, at the moment. She's close, but not quite there. So that really puts into perspective the sort of levels that Julie was reaching um, at Arsenal and for the Scottish national side. She has 116 goals and 121 caps for Scotland. And when you consider that Scotland um, weren't, you know, an international superpower while she was playing, that that's an extraordinary record as well. And I'm really happy that a documentary has kind of gone out to, to document the extraordinary things Julie did in her career and, and fairly recently as well. Um, so I had, a, I had a really good kind of 40-minute chat with Julie and um, I was really humbled to be able to have the chance to do that because I watched Julie play for Arsenal and she, she really is a club legend and one I think that's a little bit overlooked, maybe because she wasn't an England international as well. She was a Scotland international um, and, it, and it was really great to be able to speak with her about her career. Um, just some details about the documentary, if you don't already know. It went out on BBC Alba um, on Sunday, the 10th of April. It is being repeated um, on Friday, the 15th of April at 10pm on BBC Alba, if you'd like to watch it. But if not, fear not, it's on the BBC iPlayer, um, I believe until the 9th of May. So plenty of chance to watch it. And I really, really st strongly recommend that you do. Um, and if you're not convinced yet, well, here's my chat with Julie Fleeting about her extraordinary career. Okay, absolutely delighted to be joined by Arsenal and Scotland legend Julie Fleeting to the show. Julie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. So, Julie, um, kind of the reason we're, we're doing this interview is, is obviously BBC Alba screened a documentary about you, um, which went out last week. Um, at what stage did someone approach you with the idea of doing a documentary about your career? What was, what was that kind of process from, I guess, concepts to filming? Yeah, I think it was last summer. I remember sitting on the beach enjoying the Scottish sunshine um, when I had a phone call from um, a girl, Sarah, at Purple TV to say that she had been approved funding to make this documentary and um, would I agree to to have it made? Would I agree to be a part of it and include family and, and friends in it? And yeah, I mean, obviously I was I was delighted. I was looking forward to kind of reliving all the, the best moments in, in my career. And um, from then on, it was just a matter of setting up interviews with, with the people that they wanted to speak to and a gradual process of pulling everything everything together. Anna, did, did uh, they kind of explain why they wanted to do the documentary? I mean, I, I was really pleased when I heard about this just because in many respects, I think you were kind of unfortunate that your career, I mean, I know you played in the WSL a bit just after its launch, mm -hmm. but your career kind of came just before that, that boom, I guess. And, um, and yeah, so I, I wondered whether that was kind of discussed with you in terms of why they, Purple TV wanted to do this documentary. I think it was probably just because, or one of the reasons would have been because I had kind of lived through that process of the acceleration of, of the sport. I had kind of been at the start when it, there wasn't an awful lot of publicity. There, there wasn't an awful lot of female teams, girls teams when I was younger. And I was able then to kind of live through the process of the increasing popularity and, and participation and 
although when I ended my career, it, it wasn't at the stage it's at at the moment, but there's certainly I was able to, to see such a, a huge jump um, and it was probably that the story was a good one because it started off with me at a boys club because there was no female teams and uh, all the way to kind of playing for Arsenal, as you say, in, in the top league. Yeah, and that, that was actually going to be um, my next question, really. it's Even now, I think it's quite common for current professionals to have started playing with boys, like I know Vivian Miedema, for example, um, you know, one of your predecessors as an Arsenal striker, she played with boys till she was 14. And there's a lot of current professionals who still kind of came up that way. In the documentary, it touches on the fact that in the kind of late 80s, you and some friends created a team uh, comprised of girls who hadn't made local boys teams, which is actually something I think Nikita Paris did as well when she was a teenager. Uh And she certainly name checks you as, as one of her idols. And, I guess um, my, my question, I like asking this question to footballers, but at what age did you realise that you were that you were good? Um, I don't think I ever thought about um, kind of how good my ability was. I think I was just so immersed in loving the game, loving being part of a team, getting the opportunity. When I, I joined the boys team, I was age nine. And before that, I had gone along to my cousin's team to, to watch him play I would play at the side with the subs um, before they went on have a kick about there I would play in the street and for me it, it never entered my head that I would get the opportunity to put a strip on at that age and, and be part of a kind of organisation so the, the moment I, I got that opportunity and realised that they had got permission for me to then join this boys team I was just so immersed in, in the football side of it that thinking about, oh, hang on, I might be able to go to a higher level. I might be able to play for my country. That never really never really entered my head. And it was probably just took each step as it kind of came along. And for me, I'm, I'm glad it happened that way because I wouldn't have liked to have tried to look too far ahead. And I was very grateful then for, for kind of everything that was given to me at that stage. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that really came across to me in the documentary. I've spoken to people like Kelly Smith before and Rachel Yankee, and their kind of um, you know their youth careers like sounded like a fight, you know. And Kelly talks a lot about how the opposition to her playing drove her on. You've got this amazing story of Rachel Yankee shaving her head and pretending to be a boy uh, mm-hmm. to be able to play with boys teams, but. What kind of came across in the documentary to me is that that didn't seem so much like the situation for you, that not not that you weren't bothered, but that it didn't feel like such a kind of a fight for acceptance for you. Do, do, is that accurate, do you think? I think I probably, I joined a great team in the boys club I, I went to. They were um, kind of very respectful. They fought my corner in terms of with the league to make sure that I could continue to play. And I think my mum and dad were a big part of that. They they almost helped in every hurdle where that was taken away from me and they would find the next step. So when I had to leave the boys' team, it was then about finding a, a girls' team, which was a bit further away for me. And then they would take the obstacle away of, well, we can get you there. We can get you to and from training. We can get you to teams. And I probably really all I had to think about was enjoying my football um, and I didn't look 
too much into the fact that my brother was playing games every week with teams who were within three miles of him, where I was playing against teams in the north of Scotland and in the south of Scotland and the east, because that's how far we had to travel to, to kind of get a game. I didn't really think of it like that. It was just exciting at the time that I was getting the opportunity to to kind of be involved in the sport and to continue what I had loved so much about playing in the boys' team. Yeah, and I think your brother says at one point in the documentary that you were you were pretty good at hockey and pretty good at basketball and that perhaps those sports, um, you know, particularly, I guess, in the 90s, had maybe less barriers um, for girls who, who kind of wanted to pursue that. Did, did you have a sense of that at all? Or was it just that it was just always football that was your overriding passion? I, I loved all sports. When I went to secondary, that's when I got um, the opportunities kind of opened where I played basketball and hockey and then I went to clubs as well at night. So I played for club teams in basketball and hockey. My hockey would have been on a Saturday morning. I would play with the club team or Saturday afternoon and then football was a Sunday. So I had opportunities with, with other sports and yeah, they were definitely easier in terms of the amount of participants and the amount of teams that were in our local area. Um, but for me, there was never any question about where my heart was in terms of what sport I wanted to play for the rest of my kind of sporting life. And I just felt differently about football. There was just something about it that um, was just special. And although I loved the other sports, I was never going to choose them over football. And uh, the, the documentary also covers that when you were at Air United as a teenager, uh, you kind of went on a, a, a bit of a tour in Brazil. I mean, what was that like as an experience? And was that a point where you thought, oh, wow, I'm going to another continent to play football. This is this is getting serious now. Yeah, that was incredible. That was uh, my second cap. So we went over to Brazil. I was 15 at the time. I remember I was at the stage where I was going through my hires at at um, secondary school um, and I was allowed away as long as I kind of studied while I was there it was quite an important part important time in my education as well but I was 15 years old I was travelling to to Brazil to, to get my second third and fourth cap while I was there and uh, yeah it was a real eye opener Brazil were absolutely miles ahead of us in terms of where they were in, in the women's game and the ability of, of the team and uh, it was it was we just chased them about for 90 minutes in all three of the games and yeah I knew then I had quite a lot of work to do if I wanted to kind of compete with the best and the best countries in the world and if I wanted to kind of seriously um, continue my football career but I think that was probably a, a good thing because I got to see that not to be complacent in the league in Scotland we were doing really well in. I was in the national team along with a number of, of my teammates at Air United at a very young age, but it allowed me not to be complacent and, and see that there was still an awful lot of hard work still to go. Yeah, speaking of hard work, and another thing the documentary covers, and I know probably a real highlight of your career, was when Scotland, the extraordinary story of Scotland needing to beat Lithuania 17-0 um, and managing it, <laughs> thanks to, to a stoppage time header from yourself. I, I wonder, um, in, in I believe that was the 1999 World Cup qualification campaign, and, and I wonder whether, you know, obviously a, a great personal memory for you and for your teammates, but I wonder whether 
you ever reflect in these years when you look at a Scotland team at the moment, um, that, or, or at least in the last few years, that's had the likes of Kim Little, Lisa Evans, Erin Cuthbert, do you, do you ever, and Caroline Weir, and really, like Scotland is producing really, really good talent in the women's game still. Mm-hmm. Do you ever yeah. kind of reflect and, and think, maybe I played a bit of a part in that? Um, no, I don't. I know that along with the other girls who, who played for Scotland at the time, then um, we did kind of help bring on the game. But I also think there's a lot of hard work from so many people to to get it there. It wasn't just the the players who were on the pitch. There was a lot of work going behind the scenes, and obviously we were the front of it um, and and driving forward and trying to get the right results. Um, and yeah, we're we're really proud that the other night when the documentary was was first aired, there was a number of girls who were in the documentary. We were together watching it along with my family and. Um, yeah, I mean, we're all really proud of, of where the game is now and we're really proud of the players who pull on the jersey. Um, we know what it meant to us. And you can see, I was at the game last night, um, Scotland-Spain game, and you can see what it means to everyone that pulls on the Scotland jersey and you just never want to lose that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like a lot of players at the time, uh, certainly high-level players, you you went to the US uh, to play for San Diego Spirit. Um, first of all, how difficult was it for you to be away from home? And did you have this sense? Did you have this sense that this was something you had to do? And was there anyone else at San Diego in a similar situation to you? Yeah, it was. It was definitely. I said in the documentary, and um, you'll have seen that. It, it was the hardest thing that I ever had to do was to move away. Um, there wasn't the kind of means of keeping in touch with people as it is today in terms of um, all your kind of social media and mobile phones being so accessible. Um, It was really difficult. I remember meeting my team. I was going to meet them in Boston because they had an away game. So halfway, almost halfway in the flight. And I remember thinking I'm landing in Boston airport. I've, I've no phone to get in touch with the the admin or the the player liaison who was going to be meeting me. I've no idea of Boston Airport where the team will be, or and I just remember in the, the the fear of first of all how will I find them, and second of all I'm going to step on the bus with a team full of superstars and um, players at the playing at the highest level in the game, and I'm going to have to just try and slot in as as quickly as possible. And it was. It, it was something that I couldn't say no to, whether I wanted to um, or not. I felt that I had been given this opportunity, the opportunity that millions of, of females would would jump at and I couldn't possibly say no for, for that reason. And a big part of me, of course, didn't want to say no. It would have been easier to say no because I wouldn't have had to kind of go over all the hurdles and... Um, try and really settle in but I'm so glad now that I made the step and um, my first season was was really hard but the second season I absolutely loved Yeah I, I had a similar conversation a couple of years ago with Lisa Evans who was kind of at university I believe when she had an offer to play in Germany and she said something very similar that she just you know she didn't want to leave home she didn't want to leave her degree but she you know she really felt she had to take it and again mm-hmm. Lisa is 
you know, uh, like a generation after you and, and like yeah. women's footballers are still kind of having to make those choices. But maybe, you know, in, in this day and age, the, the kind of the US option, as it were, which so many players took, like Kelly Smith, like Alex Scott, you know, maybe they don't have to take that option quite as much anymore with, with the WSL. Do you think that were the WSL as it is now, that you'd have perhaps just gone to a WSL club, maybe straight to a club like Arsenal, or do you still think that going abroad, I, I guess, um, do, you, do you still think that going abroad actually in the long run really had probably more value to you? I think it had more value to me in different aspects of life, as well, not just football, but to then be able to go over there. And um, I was 21 at the time. I had graduated just um, I missed my graduation ceremony and graduation ball to to leave instantly as soon as I had qualified and and go to America and I think for me generally as a person and in my character it helped me more going to America I think the people that I got to meet there and the different cultures and um just a different way of life was was really helpful and um and building up who I am now um, so yeah I think I'm delighted that that was the the kind of only option at the time to, to be a full time professional and um, now to have friends on the other side of the world and um, to have lived through those experiences um, I'm really really grateful now for and uh, I, I guess bringing it back to Arsenal, since we are an Arsenal podcast, uh, you know, Vic, uh, Vic Akers said he, he kind of chased your signature for a long time. How, how long were you aware of this and when did you first speak to Vic and how did kind of signing for Arsenal come about? Um, I, I had known, I think, before I had gone over to America that they had been interested in, in signing me. I think he had watched um, a Scotland-England game that I had played in. So I had known then that he was kind of wanting to speak to me, but then I had taken the option at that point to, to go abroad and, and go to California. But when I returned, um, I think he had got in touch and I had agreed to, to have a chat and, and see what the options would be. And from from then on in, um, Vic just made it really easy to for me to to slot in at Arsenal and, and took every, all the kind of issues and barriers away that are problems that I might have had and um, allowed me then just to, to go to Arsenal and concentrate on my football. Yeah, and um, I, I won't linger too much on the kind of fairly extraordinary details and, and not least the commute <laughs> that you were doing to play for <laughs> Arsenal because we want people to watch the documentary and find out. But needless to say, you commuted from Scotland uh, to play for Arsenal on a Sunday and when you arrived at Arsenal, you know, you'd already played in the US where, like you say, it was pretty much the only fully professional setup around. Um, and I know it's difficult because you didn't really train much with Arsenal, um, but, you, you know, you'd been in a, pr a pro in the US at that time. How did the environment at Arsenal um, compare and how was the, how did you get a sense that the, the environment at Arsenal was different perhaps to other clubs in England? Um. Yeah, like I had been part of a professional team where we had trained every day together and um, we were very close and I was very much a part of that team. When I went to Arsenal, it was, I could see they were close. I could see that they were very professional. I could see the quality of 
of players that they had in the dressing room. I could see all of that in match days. I was almost like uh, a kind of stranger looking in at times, um, especially at the start. And I was through no fault of uh, the players that were there. They worked really hard to kind of include me in, in the team. But it's very difficult to, to kind of do that initially when you're only seeing each other at getting changed, doing the warm-up during the game. And, and then I'm gone again for another another week until the next game comes around. So um, they definitely had a team littered with talent in every single season that I played there at Arsenal. And um, of course, that was kind of built by Vic. He, he always could attract the, the best players at Arsenal and then also get the best out of them, of them when they were there. So um, it was every year, um, it was a, a dressing room where you would look around and go, I'm glad... I'm in the same team as the players in here. Yeah, and you talk as well in the documentary about because you weren't training with the team, um, doing your job as a PE teacher in Scotland, uh, I guess the difficulty of creating those relationships and friendships and that kind of amusing story where you pretend to like tea, <laughs> just so you <laughs> can know spend... I, I, I don't think I ever told the, the players this story, so <laughs> yeah, like... They know now. Very tragic, <laughs> very tragic story. Um <laughs> Yeah, like I, I was just, we had gone away. This story was when we were in Russia, I remember, and we had gone away and we were going to be away for maybe a week to 10 days. And I had only ever spent a maximum of two hours with, with the team um, prior to that. So very difficult to kind of, I would observe in the changing room a lot. I was probably extremely quiet and kind of just got on with, with my job. Um but this was then an opportunity for me to try and get to know people and um, kind of integrate off the pitch. So, yeah, my, my story of pretending to, to like tea um, is a sad one. I'm well aware of that, but um, it worked and I became a part of the team and part of the friendship group. And um, it helps me socially now to, to enjoy a cup of tea with, with people. I feel like a, a proper adult now been anglicised when you it, I don't think it goes into this in the documentary you say that was in Russia was that the 2006 group stage yes I yeah. think so yep yep and so am I right in saying that Vic I don't think if I remember rightly Vic wasn't there and Emma Hayes took the team is that right oh you could yes that you could be right what I probably should have said to you at the start of this is my memory <laughs> there are certain things that stand out but yeah, that um, not everything is is crystal clear, but um, we were in safe hands with Emma, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So for listeners that don't know, there was basically a group stage that happened in Russia, but it happened about in about a week. So they, were, they got the group stage out of the way in about seven days in one venue. Uh, and yeah, so this was the beginning of Arsenal's triumphant 2006-07 UEFA Cup campaign, which we'll come on to in a minute. But before that, I'd like to come on to the 2004 FA Cup final, which is um, a game I remember uh, very well. I was I was there as a supporter. Um, maybe do you want to tell our listeners why that was a particularly special day for you at Loftus Road? Um, yeah, the, the day before we had played uh, Germany in a qualifier in, in Scotland, and on this, I think that would be the Sunday afternoon, and then straight after the game, I was on a flight down to, to London to meet up with the team because we had the FA Cup final um, less than 24 hours later. So, But in the game itself, I had 
taken a, a knock and had a dead leg and uh, you're finding a game to continue playing but the minute you stop playing then the kind of stiffness and pain sets in so when I had gone down to the team hotel I remember they were the physios were on hand to, to kind of help me through it and try and recover as quickly as I possibly could because um, I think our, our game was like, possibly was was a midday kickoff um, mm. so it was a, a race against time to, to try and kind of get fit for what was going to be my first cup final in an Arsenal jersey so for me I was just desperate to play I had signed in the January had loved my football had been kind of a part of the the FA Cup story from from that moment onwards it was one my first game um, for Arsenal was in the FA Cup and I wanted to see it out I wanted to be a part of of the team and wanted to get myself on the pitch and um, luckily thanks to the the physios at Arsenal I was able to to start the game and and being the one in team in the end yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I just remember having no idea about, I mean, it says it speaks to the kind of, I guess, the lack of coverage at the time. I had no idea that Scotland had even played the day before. So I kind of just turned up, saw you bang in some goals and Arsenal win the cup. And I didn't read about this backstory until afterwards. Um, quite extraordinary. But a, another final um, I was at as a fan as well, quite extraordinary, 2007 um, against Umeya. Um, I was at the second leg anyway at Boreham Wood, one of the most nerve-wracking games I think I've ever seen. Um, and Arsenal, of course, did something very extraordinary, winning what is now recognised as the Champions League. And I, I, I've spoken to I've spoken to Kelly Smith about this. I've spoken to Faye White about this about this game and the importance of it. And you know, I, it's hard to get across the strength of Umea with players like Hannah Lundberg and and a young Marta. Um, at the time and obviously Arsenal were without Kelly Smith for both legs due to suspension and one of the questions I asked Kelly actually because obviously she got she got herself sent off and in a bit of bother in the semi-final and one of the questions I asked her was actually whether her absence really helped solidify Arsenal's game plan which was really unusual for Arsenal at the time to be big underdogs and to play quite defensively and I wonder, you know, as like one of the attackers in the team, whether you had that sense as well, um, or, or I guess what your emotions were when you realised you'd be playing this huge game against probably superior opposition and without mm -hmm. the best player. Like as a as a striker yourself, did that? And how how did that feel going into that game? I mean, of course, we were obviously um, all gutted to to not have Kelly on the pitch. She was such an important player for us and um, it, it just meant that the rest of us wanted to work harder and make sure that at the end um, that she was going to pick up a medal alongside the rest of us. So I think it, at that point, yes, Kelly was a star, but, but we had a, a real team spirit and we had a team who were willing to, to really work super hard for each other. And um, I think that's what kind of got us through both legs was the fact that we did have that strength and, and work hard, the, the ability to, to kind of work hard throughout the, the 90 minutes on both legs. So um, I think we, we didn't get too many opportunities to attack. So probably the majority of my game, certainly in the second half and the second leg, um, was all about defending and, and kind of trying to help the team and make sure that we had a clean sheet and kind of thanks to... Emma Burnham goals yep. who who saved us on numerous occasions 
um, then it it just it was always going to be Arsenal's day after that when you, you kind of look at the clips of near misses and crossbar and post and saves that Emma made um, that the story was written for us. Yeah, I, I remember, and I can't remember who had the shot, but the ball came off the post, hit Emma on the head and mm-hmm. just went wide. And at that point, you start to think very nervously, <laughs> yeah. this might be our day. But you referenced the defensive aspect there. And of course, Arsenal were also kind of without Faye White. She'd just come back from an ACL injury. So she was on the bench. And so there, there were quite a lot of young players in that team, like uh, Neitz, Anita Asante. I believe she was mm-hmm. about 20 at the time. Uh, Karen Carney as well, who was about 20 at the time. So there were Leanne Sanderson as well. She was quite young at the time. Like, did did you have that sense as well? Um, or, or was it just the case that that all of the players were just at a really high level? Did Did you have that sense of trying to look after some of the younger players on this occasion? I think these players were young, but they were ready. There were players who weren't phased by the three you mentioned there. They weren't faced by the occasion. They didn't come across as being young and inexperienced. They slotted into a very experienced side extremely well. And um, none of us, I wasn't experienced in a cup final of of that size in, in European football. So it would be wrong for me to say that I was pulling them through the, the game. Um, I mean, all three of those players are... Um, not just great players, but they've got great character within the dressing room and um, great confidence in their own ability. So um, for them to kind of compete at, at that level against such a, a fantastic side um, just shows you the calibre of, of player. But it also shows you the, the kind of dressing room. We had real leaders in there who just pulled everyone together and you, you didn't feel separated in any way at that point. We were, um, we were certainly a strong unit. Yeah, and I think you can see the careers that those players went on to have, not even necessarily just at Arsenal. Um, just the last couple of questions, because I've, I've kept you for quite a long time um, already, mm-hmm. but I, I just wanted to touch on, I guess, your experiences of, of playing as a mother. Um, so you kind of started playing two to three months after having your daughter, Ella, and you speak in the documentary about bringing her along to camp, for example, um, for Scotland Games. And um, again, I, I wonder what that experience was like for you. And and I guess looking at the game now, we don't see that so much in the women's game. But then, you know, I look at the moment at players like Emma Mitchell, Melanie Leupoltz, um, and I wonder if that's that's starting. I, I don't know whether Emma and, and Melanie, you know, are, are going to be um, like symptomatic of a of a new uh, kind of trend, I guess, or or whether that's just a coincidence. But I guess your experiences of of playing as a mother and playing so soon after after giving birth to your daughter. I had been a part of it in America, and um, it, it seemed to work really well. Um, I had in my team in San Diego, Joy Fawcett had three three kids, and we would travel right across America for almost every away game and. Most of the time, her children came with her um, and I had been a part of that. I had seen it work. I had heard from the the other US players about how that was the case with, with quite a few mums who were in their national team at the, at the time. And I thought I didn't realise that that's something that could work. And for me, when I had gone on to have Ella, first time mum, we're going to Cyprus, I think, was our first trip. And it was a 10-day trip and... 
So there's no way I can leave a, a baby who's four or five months old at the time um, and go away for 10 days. My husband's job wasn't easy either. He was a footballer at the time and you couldn't just ask for a week off to to kind of look after her. So I was lucky that the, the Scottish FA backed me in, in that and supported me and allowed me then to, to have Ella at camp. And down at Arsenal, they were very much the same. We had Katie Chapman, who was a mum, and on away trips, um, her son would, would come with us, and um, Vic was, was open to that. And I think it meant that if you take that barrier away, for me, if I had gone to Cyprus without Ella, my mind would have been elsewhere for um, a, lot of, a lot of the time. But to have her there, I could focus on my training. I knew that that she was there and, and if she needed her mum after training or during the night or, or whatever, then I was there. And I think that really helped. It helped me be able to focus on, on my football. And um, I was really grateful for the, to the Scottish FA to, to allow that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as someone who's got a two-year-old who's taking to screaming at three o'clock in the morning at the moment, <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Um, my, my, my last question really, I guess, is about um, your legacy as an Arsenal player. And I, I asked a similar question to uh, in the past to Emma Byrne and to Jane Ludlow um, about whether they feel or whether they think about their Arsenal legacy? Because I think there are a lot of players from around your time, like Kelly Smith, like Rachel Yankee, who really do have that reputation. But I kind of feel like, because the Arsenal team at that time was basically a Great Britain dream team, lots of Welsh players, Scottish players, Irish players. So I feel like actually the ones who weren't English, like Jane, like Emma, um, were sometimes a little bit overlooked. And when I look at um, I guess the I, I always think that particularly up front, you can draw a line through Arsenal's history from Marianne Spacey to Kelly to yourself to Vivian Niedema. But I feel like your part in that equation is quite overlooked. And I wonder whether, first of all, whether you ever think about that um, or whether it's not something you think about at all. Uh, and I guess looking at someone like Vivian Niedema now, who's you know a predecessor to you, um, you know, I guess that the feeling you get watching her, um, you know, and she, she's got a very similar goal scoring record to you. In fact, yours is slightly better uh, than Vib's, which would probably shock quite a lot of people. So I wonder, first of all, whether you ever think about your legacy and, and when you see a player like Vivian Miedema and, and the attention that she rightfully gets, like how, how you feel. Um, no, I, I, I don't think about it. I don't need to be given any, kind of recognition for um, what I kind of achieved on the pitch for Arsenal. I'm, I'm happy with it. I'm delighted that I was able to to help the team. Um, I'm very grateful to have been given the opportunity. It was a, I'm sure it would have been a difficult decision to kind of try and overcome all the obstacles that were going to be in the way of me pulling on a national jersey. Um, and I'm just delighted to kind of be part of the history and the players that you talked about there at one moment and well actually throughout my Arsenal career we had the England captain and, and Faye White we had the Welsh captain and Jane Ludlow we had the Irish captain and Kira Grant and we had the Scottish captain um, myself so it was a really powerful strong team all the way through the spine of the team that is the right down the middle of our team at Arsenal and um, I'm proud to to have shared the pitch with with these girls 
and I'm I'm sure they're the same. I, I don't feel that people need to kind of continue to to talk about us and um, and kind of give us credit. The Arsenal team nowadays are phenomenal, and um, I'm a strong supporter of of all that they're doing. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And you know, um, I, I just want to thank you first of all, Julie, for your time because you've given us a lot of your time this morning and. Um, I'll, I'll put aside the professional journalist part here and say, like I say, I, I'm a fan. I was at the 2004 <laughs> Cup final. I was at 2007. I've done this interview many times in my head before. So thanks for giving me the chance <laughs> no, to make thank it a reality. <laughs> thank you. It's been wonderful kind of reliving it all and a trip down memory lane from my Arsenal days. So thank you very much for the opportunity to do that. Thanks very much, Judy. <laughs> A massive thanks to Arsenal and Scotland legend Julie Fleeting for her time. I really, really enjoyed having the chance to chat with her. And uh, as you may have gathered from the podcast, I was very excited about the chance to chat with her because, like I said, I, I watched her a lot as a player. And as I told her, that's an interview I've done in my head many, many times. And uh, I originally pitched the interview as about 20 to 25 minutes. And we ended up running to 40 minutes because I just had so many questions. And um, I think the fan in me came out a little bit there. I'd also really like to thank Callum Wooja. Um, for help from Electrify uh, for helping set up the interview and really, really hope that you enjoyed it. And to re-emphasize the documentary about Julie Fleeting's career on BBC Alba, it's being repeated this coming Friday, the 15th of April at 10 p.m. Otherwise, it's available on the iPlayer, the BBC iPlayer, until the 9th of May. I really strongly encourage you to watch it because, frankly, there aren't enough documentaries about some of these extraordinary uh, female players and and not only that but the barriers they have to overcome to play um there's also one of i believe available on the bbc iplayer at the moment about jane ludlow as well and another uh, arsenal legend i had the pleasure of chatting to back in july 2020 and you can check that interview out on ask blog news but really really grateful to julie for her time and to be able to put this podcast out and and i guess shine a light on the career of an arsenal legend Thank you very much for listening. We will be back with another podcast during the middle of next week. 
myself, Alex and Pippa will have another mailbag edition for you. So keep an eye out on Twitter on Tuesday and maybe Wednesday morning and we'll put a call for questions out. Sorry, Tuesday morning we're recording. Uh, so probably Monday evening and Tuesday morning, I will put a call out uh, for questions on my Twitter feed at Stilberto and we'll get as many of your questions in as possible. Um, but thanks very much for listening and we will speak to you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.